Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, hey, thanks for joining us for America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Joined this week by guest co-host Mathen Black. Now, normally we're live in studio on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, but it being the day after Christmas, stations closed. And yet, we still have a show for you, but we're releasing it as a podcast only. All right. On the show tonight, Mathen and I take a look back at the opera news headlines of 2016 in our Chalk Talk segment. We give you our best and worst productions of 2016 in Monday Evening Quarterback, and we go inside the huddle solo style to reflect on choices we made in our own careers. Plus, at the end of the show, we make a few predictions for what 2017 will bring. Don't miss our prognostications. That's a big word, Mathen, prognostications. Uh, you know, normally I, I know most of the big words, or at least my <laughs> ego thinks that I do. Uh, do. I, I don't know that word. Try saying prognostication after a couple gin and tonics. Prognostication <laughs> after a couple gin and tonics. It, Boom! Get out of here. It means prediction. Right. Uh, hey, how was how was your Christmas? You were back in Arkansas? Back in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City. Okay. I have never lived in Oklahoma, but my parents have been there for about uh, six, seven years, something along those okay. lines now. Right. It's nice to be with family. Normally, the wife and I are stuck here in Chicago doing music gigs, church stuff, right. and you know she's making the Rebecca, or the Rebecca Minkoff store on Oak Street ridiculously okay. profitable. So we're normally here, but got to spend some very needed time with mom and dad. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, I was back in Michigan. Michigan, it was really cold. Really? Which meant ice skating. Wait, so is it colder in Michigan than it is in Chicago? It's comparable. Ugh. It's comparable. Yeah, but man, I grew up in in Michigan. So like for me, you got to embrace the cold. Uh, you know, we, we uh, stay with my wife's family when we go back to Ann Arbor. He, uh, her, her dad lives on a lake. Yeah. And so it's like pond hockey, snowshoeing, cross-country skiing. It's just it's a total winter wonderland. So are you good at okay. ice skating? I'm real I'm a really good ice skater. Yeah. Really? Played- I'm I'm abysmally terrible. <laughs> uh, I played intramural ice hockey in college. So you're basically Canadian. I would I'm gonna hit you. <laughs> with a hockey stick. So once we get back to Chicago and make sure everything's cool, right. we need to go ice skating together in, in January. That would be great. Down in uh, Millennium Park. Yeah. That would be so much fun. And then you have like hot chocolate with a little peppermint stick twizzler yes. after yep. it. And you just try to put elbows in all of the tiny children around That's you exactly as you exactly right. They deserve to be taken down a peg uh, They do. They're just a little too big for their britches. Speaking of the kids, let me just tell you real quick for my two presents for christmas there is like a whole google doc spreadsheet to make sure that all the grown-ups are giving all the kids different things it's a very complex process plus of course hanukkah which my wife's family celebrates overlap with christmas this year there is the most disgusting mountain of presents under the tree slash hanukkah bush that you've ever seen really yes so so what do you think is the coolest present you bought for someone this year uh, I would have to say I bought each of my kids a book. Oh, what did you get a them? Really, a new book. Um, I got my son this sticker book about London. Yeah. Uh, and I got my daughter a book about a badly behaved princess. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> Do you know who Alfred Burt is? Yeah, man. The Carols, right? The Alfred, Alfred Burt Carols, Carols, right? Yeah. So I was introduced to the Alfred Burt Carols when I was in high school. We okay. would sing these things in, in church choirs and at high school choirs. And I've never done this before. I can talk about it now that we're out, out past Christmas. Yeah. But for the last couple of weeks before Christmas, I have been working on a carol for my parents mm-hmm. in the tradition of Alfred Burt. Nice. And just finished it, wrote a three stanza poem, or did a did a choral arrangement for it. And I uh, got, got my brother and his family who live in Burkina Faso right. to Skype in with me. And we all sang it together. 
together and recorded it and gave it to my parents for Christmas. Save that and preserve that. I mean, that is like a true Christmas memory. That's going to be important, right? Hey, let's talk some opera. Let's do it. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right, so we start off with our Chalk Talk segment. Now, normally on the show, this is kind of like the big topic that we talk about. And on this particular 2016 year in review, we're just going to focus on like the best and the worst opera news headlines of the year. Mathen, you want to go first? Or should Absolutely. Go? Should we start with best or should we start with worst? It's up to you, dude. I'll follow your lead. Well, let's let's start with a little humor. All right. Because, you know, I, I actually don't keep up a lot with what's going on in the opera world in terms of news and headlines. One of the best ways that I do that is through listening to this show. Okay. Through the two-minute drill, getting to know what's going on in opera. And I, I sat in with you guys back in the summer when we first heard about the Copenhagen Opera House and what was found uh. Oh, here we go. All right, Do you remember you, this? Uh, very vaguely. It was something like 176 pounds of marijuana were found <laughs> on the roof of the Copenhagen Opera House. So I went back to do a little research so we could talk about it a okay. little more eloquently today. Okay. And um, I didn't realize this when we talked about it initially when it happened. Um, the police officers found it in the early part of the year okay. and waited seven weeks before announcing any anything. Were they hoping... doing like clinical tests? No, they were it? actually they were doing like a sting operation. They set up cameras and surveillance and were hoping they would catch someone trying to come back to pick it up. And no one ever did. So it's literally just considered lost property. So somewhere in Denmark, there's... 176 pounds of weed just chilling. Got to be very careful because, like, normally, you know, if it's trash, you would just incinerate it. Yes. But that would be problematic in this example. It, it would not? be problematic. Or extremely beneficial. <laughs> For everyone involved. <laughs> that is that is absolutely my favorite opera news headline of all time. All right. Well, I just realized that my best and my worst are kind of a combo. So we'll throw it over to me and then we'll throw it back to you. Please. For your worst. Uh, English National Opera in London is a company near and dear to my heart. You know, when I was a kid going to boarding school in England, the first operas I ever saw were at ENO. This is a company, it performs at the London Coliseum, which is right behind the National Gallery, right off Trafalgar Square, and all the work that they do is in English. I remember the very first show I saw there was La Clemenza di Tito by Mozart in English. I was absolutely bored out of my mind. Yeah, I hate that show. But I went back and back as a schoolboy, and every time I go to London, I always try and go see their shows. Best and worst headline has been English National Opera this year. This is a company that has had a huge turnover in management at the beginning of the year. They got a new CEO, a woman called Cressida Pollock. I've been tough on her all year. They have a new music director, Martin Brabbins, and then a new artistic director, Daniel Kramer, who is an acquaintance of mine. Now, the company was in financial pressures at the end of 2015. At the beginning of 2016, the chorus goes on strike, and there's a huge legal battle between the opera house and the chorus. And yet, somehow, this company has continued to produce. They've been smart. They've rented out their venue, the Coliseum, to national tours of standard musicals not produced by English National Opera, but they've become a roadhouse to get extra money. They reworked their contract with the chorus to keep those choristers 40-odd in number there. And to their credit, I really think that this company in 2016 has gone from worst to best. And with Kramer at the helm, I do think that in 2017, they've got some big things ahead of them. Let's go back to you then, Mathen. Okay, for your worst headline of 2016. Um, so my my worst headline for 2016 actually spans almost the whole year. We first heard about this story last year in 2015 around August um, with with reports of Dmitry Havorostovsky's failing health, um, which then culminated in finding out that he did have brain cancer, underwent surgery. Um, and, the, and the real reason this this works for a 2016 headline is for for all accounts he made a miraculous recovery. I got to see him live in concert 
concert at the Lyric earlier in the year, gave a phenomenal performance. But then just two or three weeks ago, he finally released that he has to bow out of all operatic engagements because of balance problems related to his treatment and his illness. He still is singing. I think just a few nights ago, he did a giant Dmitry Vorstovsky and Friends concert in Moscow that was phenomenally great music and great wonderful people. But to, to have the end of an era coming where Dmitry Vorstovsky isn't going to be on the stage is one of the worst things that happened this year. talked about this on the show a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. when we were discussing Vorostovsky. I'll ask you then. I want to ask you again now. If you are Dmitry Vorostovsky, you've been a performer on stage in roles your whole career, and now you decide that you're not able, not to sing because he's still doing concerts, but you can't put on the makeup, put on the costume, get on the stage. How does that affect you as a performing artist? You know, it's it's interesting. I, I don't know him personally, and there's a lot of different types of singers in the world. There's the kind of singers who fall in love with the music. I personally love nothing more than zitz probes and music rehearsal because I get to live fully in my brain inside of the music and inhabit it. But there are those kinds of singers who love the drama and the physical action on the stage and who, without the lights, can't exist. I, Dimitri is... A, uh, he's a bit of a braggart. He's a sort of a stoic kind of guy. He's very strong. He's very physical. Well, he's very Russian, too. He really right? is very Russian. So... so I am assuming that there's going to be a lot of a lot of sadness and a lot of anger at losing that part, especially because it's something that had nothing to do with his behavior on stage. Right. He's still at the top of his game, and to have that taken away, if I were him, I would be angry, and I would be looking for solutions. My prediction for him over the next few years mm-hmm. is that he puts... I know when we talked about this the other day, we talked about him being able to have time to put into teaching and education. Yeah. I think that would be fine. I think we're going to find him becoming one of the most prolific recording artists of the next few years. 
great prediction. We have more predictions coming up for you at the end of the show. Super quick, I do have two other headlines. These are not opera-related. But if you had to sum up 2016 just purely from the press, I think that the best headline here in Chicago would have to be Cubs win World Series. Absolutely. Now, you live like blocks from Wrigley Field, man. I mean, did you go join the celebrations that 100%. <laughs> and you know me, and you know our listeners know me a little bit from my time guesting on the podcast. Yeah. I'm not a huge sports guy. Um, moving to Chicago sort of changed that for me because right. it's so much fun. I got to be downtown every time the the um, Blackhawks won the World mm-hmm. Series, or excuse me, won the Stanley Cup. Getting to be a part of that is beautiful. The Bulls are great. Even when the Bears are terrible, it's still fun to hang out and talk about it. Right. So my wife and I were in our apartment watching the, watching the game on television, and there's a little restaurant right across the street from us called Four Belly that okay. has a couple of televisions in the window. There were a hundred people outside watching the Jesus. game through the windows. We opened our windows together. We were all screaming and shouting. Yeah. And as soon as they won, we knew we weren't going to sleep yeah. that night. So we got dressed, made our way up north towards Wrigley, made it about four blocks, and the people were packed so thickly we couldn't move any further. And you just stayed and drank and had a good time. The Cubs winning the World Series told us that anything is possible. It told us, in my opinion, that the last true drama left to us is in sports. I've argued this philosophical point before, is that even watching film, TV, theater, opera, an ending has been written. We may know what it is, because we've seen the show before. We may not know what it is, but we know that there is some sort of solution. And yet in sports, it's the last place in our culture that we truly don't know what's going to happen and of course, this was the perfect example of that. Lastly, I think the Cubs taught us that good things come to those who wait. Absolutely. That 108 after... years sometimes. Exactly. Worst headline outside of opera. I imagine that we're going to agree on this again here in Chicago that Trump being elected president. Are we going to do we talk about it? Do we talk about it on your podcast? Well, I don't want to open up a huge can of worms about it. We've talked about it on the show before. We, there, I think there's some questions as to, you know, what's going to happen to opera, for example, mm-hmm. in the future. Trump's election to me taught me about both the simultaneous insignificance and importance of art. The insignificance of like when a man like that has been elected president, what has gone wrong? What have we done? What is the divide? Who cares if I do art? And at the same time, his election taught me as an artist that my voice is now more important than ever, that I still have to be finding the good fight and creating things that in a way all art is political and that frankly it's now my job to be even more outspoken to organize even more and to get out these sorts of voices if there's one thing this administration doesn't want it's people having a good time yes and maybe we can provide that for them you know i had a very similar reaction after a few days of calming down and getting over the initial shock of what happened it made me think back historically to all the great artists and all the great art that has been created in opposition to political regimes that did not have the people's best at heart. And I am excited about what is going to happen over the next four years in the artistic community and for people who have not felt like they had power to claim it back and create something beautiful in response to the chaos. Those are the best and worst headlines for 2016 from Mathen and myself. Uh, We're going to be right back with our segment, Monday Evening Quarterback, taking a look at some of the best and worst productions of the year. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and all the way from down south, Mathen Black. All right. Uh, Welcome back to Opera Box Score, just a podcast only. This week, WNUR is closed for the holiday. This is our post-Christmas, pre-New Year's show. The hour is me, George Cedarquist, along with Math and Black. Thank you so much, George. This is fun. Do you have any plans for New Year's Eve? I don't yet. My wife and I rarely get to spend uh, New Year's Eve together, and we're going to this year. So we're trying to find something fun to do downtown. Although I will say, I will be at Howls and Hood at 435 North Michigan Avenue the morning after, serving the lovely people of Chicago their fine brunch and beverages. New Year's Day? New Year's Day, yeah. Does anyone want to eat a meal 
at brunch time on it's, New Year's Day. It's a big, big day for the restaurant world. Think about all those uh, those drunk brunches with a little hair of the dog. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Uh, that seems like the least attractive thing to do <laughs> on New Year's Day morning. Uh, you know, what we do, have been done for the last couple years, is that we found somewhere on Netflix um, King Julian. If you know who that is, no, what is he this? is the ring-tailed lemur from the film Madagascar. I, I know what you're talking about. He has his own TV show now. It, there's a lot of, like, butt and pee jokes, which okay, really appeal, yeah. appeal to the sort of four- to seven-year-old set. Or, you know, us. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the geniuses at, I think it's Disney who create King Julian, they've created a one-minute video, which is King Julian saying, Hey, everybody, it's time to count down to the new year. And then he just counts down from ten to zero and says, Happy New Year. But you can play that at like 8 o'clock at night as a parent, and your kids think it's New Year. So he's allowing you to lie to your children. Correct. You you get to keep the kids, quote, up till midnight. They think they've celebrated New Year. Then you put them to sleep. And then you get drunk and make out on the couch. That's the most insidious thing I've heard. That's lovely. (laughs) Love it. And kind of elegantly perfect. It's beautifully done. So thank you, King Julian, wherever you are. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. Best and worst productions of 2016. I'm going to get the ball rolling here. The best show I saw, it was when I was in Germany at the end of March, beginning of April. My host or my sponsor for that three-week research trip that I did was... The, the thank you the Deutsche Oper Berlin and it was there that I during their Strauss Wochen their Strauss festival I saw this awesome production of Zalame mm-hmm. the show is what a hundred minutes long mm-hmm. for its time it has some of the most bizarre and beautiful music ever composed by Richard Strauss the story is based on the biblical story of Zalame who uh has this bizarre relationship with her father she demands the head of john the baptist brought to her on her platter prior to that she does the dance of the seven veils this production was directed by klaus gut g-u-t-h who is a regular director uh at the deutsche oper berlin and around germany conducted by ala altin oglu so beautifully done. It was set in a menswear boutique with this beautiful mahogany curved wall and racks and racks of men's tailored suits. Oh, wow. And that was meant to be the kingdom uh, of the main king. Uh, Then half the cast, I suppose, plus the chorus, were all moving as jointed mannequins the entire time that you would see in like the shop windows Mm -hmm. of a menswear boutique. It was a brilliant score, brilliantly played by the Deutsche Ober Berlin Orchestra. And it was one of the most powerful productions of Zalame I've ever seen, and certainly one of the most unique interpretations of it. It was bizarre the way it should be. It was erotic the way it should be. People are getting dressed and undressed the whole time. It was bloody the way it should be. It was quintessentially German, 
but it made more sense than most German productions I've seen before. And I don't think some of those images will ever leave my mind. And I mean that in a good way. Yeah. So from, from an aspect of, of the, the mannequins and theatricality of that, was there an effort to incorporate that into the storyline or was it a little bit of a, a concept put on top of the show? It was definitely a concept yeah. put on top of the show. Uh, the program book which when they give one to you, when you go into a big opera house like that in Germany, it's like 30 or 50 pages long. It's like a thesis. A couple basically. of essays about why it matters. Yes, I My understand. German, not good enough to read that. But man, <laughs> I look at those pictures like no one else. Uh, it definitely felt like a concept mm-hmm. layered on top of the piece. But you know me aesthetically. The last thing I want to see from Zalame is like, a fakey Middle Eastern set yes. and like people wearing crowns. If it's the Dance of the Seven Veils, I don't want it to be veils in this production because it was set in this boutique. It became like scarves and sort of trappings yeah. that you would find in a clothes store like that. But in general, yeah, it was kind of layered on top of the piece. That's not necessarily a bad thing, especially when... You know, a lot, a lot of times people will try to intellectualize opera specifically because right. there is generally a descriptive narrative taking you from one active point to the next active point. But I think in the greatest of artistic senses, when you find a way to just engage with a work emotionally rather than completely intellectually, there can be real beauty garnered there. And it sounds like that show did that for you. It really did. And I'm going to put some pictures of the show onto the website operaboxscore.com it's always disappointing i think on our show when we describe what we've Mm -hmm. seen because obviously we're in an aural medium opera it's a visual medium as much as an aural medium so it really is important to go see those production photos on the website absolutely let's see here worst production for me was in February right here in chicago at lyric opera of chicago and actually strangely enough it was also strauss Richard Strauss, Der Rosenkavalier. Uh, let me tell you why this production made me want to eat a gun. <laughs> Conducted by Edward Gardner, who, let's loop it back, the previous music director at English National Opera before Martin Brabens took over. Actually, there was one man between Brabens and Gardner, which was Mark Rigglesworth. But Gardner, of course, he had been at ENO. He was the conductor of the piece. It's the Otto Schenk production from the Bayerische Staatsoper, the Bavarian State Opera. And Mathen, I want you to guess what year, because I think you saw the show. I know I you did. saw the show. What year was that production first performed? I'm going to say 1964. So close. I'm going to give you a gold star. 1968. Oh, man. My question is, what business does Lyric Opera have of taking a show like that, which is over 40 years old, and putting it on the Lyric Opera stage? I think everyone is trying to find their version of the Zeffirelli productions that the Met has. Um, it seems like such a good idea to be able to recycle these beloved productions, um, especially from a financial standpoint. And if they are beloved by the aging audience that we have, why not bring one of those back a season? What I think we find is uh, a stifled creativity that gets very old for young patrons. There's no question. And I, I just don't understand that if opera houses truly want to bring in a younger audience, and hey, look, young can mean 40 or even 50. Comparatively, absolutely. Exactly. I just don't see how bringing back museum pieces, these are productions that would have first premiered when some of these so-called younger audience members were, I don't know, in their teens, possibly. Children. Right? Yeah, exactly. I That math, to me, just does not add up Uh, furthermore i've always believed that good art is about the here and the now and i do not see the connection between this production with its dusty sets and drop cloths and walls that shimmer and shake a little bit whenever a door is closed on them i don't see the connection between that and the world that we live in the problem is is that the music does do that that music is eternal Like Mozart, that music is eternal. It will exist forever. It will always be relevant. It will always be beautiful. But this is a visual medium, and the visual of this production were not matching up. I absolutely agree with you. It becomes problematic when... 
if opera is going to be both a vibrant rebirth of art and a curative art form that always holds up its older traditions, um, finding that balance point is difficult. And I don't think this kind of um, this kind of recycled showing is the answer to that question. So then, for you, Rosen Cavalier must have been your worst as well for the year. It was absolutely not my worst. It wasn't Actually, your worst, George. This was my favorite thing that I saw. Oh my all year. god. What? Yeah, I know. It's kind of funny that your worst is also my favorite. But that also shows the difference in temperament between you and I and what we're You're looking telling for Telling me, bro, you got a lot of talking to do. Okay. So it, so you're saying it's your best? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Hands down, and I, and I will say this, I'm not talking on a global level that it is the best production of 2016, but it was 100% my favorite thing that I saw last Why year. Why was that? Well, I need to give you a little background for this. This was the first time I ever saw Dare Rosen Cavalier live. Okay. I had never seen it live before. I am a huge huge fan of Strauss's music. Zalame is one of my favorite shows. Absolutely delicious. There's so much great going on musically there. And you also know me. I'm a huge theory nerd. So anytime you get to see harmonics blasting apart, I love it. Mm -hmm. And also as a singer who is friends with lots and lots of singers, I know amazing musicians who sing these beautiful pieces. I've heard these arias in master classes, in auditions all over the place, and never been able to experience it live. So Though I do 100% agree with you about the direction of the show and the presentation of it, I spent an entire evening being enraptured by one of the greatest opera orchestras in the world, directed by Sir Andrew Davis, Mm -hmm. and watching amazing performers like Amanda Majeski, like Sophie Koch, um, like Matthew Rose, who made his debut doing Baron Ox, put this beautiful score to life in the kind of hall that it was meant to be heard in. It was magnificent musically. Totally agree with that. Again, Edward Gardner conducting. Alice Coote was also double cast uh, in the role of Octavian. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see her or did you see Sophie Koch? Uh, no, I saw Sophie Koch as, as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Majeski playing the role of the Marshland. And P.S., She's literally like 31. When she did this show, she was 31. You know, Strauss said that no one over 32 should ever sing this role. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess the folks at Lyric really took that. Uh, as writ. Well, and we know that Amanda Majeski is one of Lyric's sweethearts. Um, she performs so much there and does admirably, and it was nice to have that be right at the prime of the intended time. Plus, she's like smoking hot, man. Oh, so, so... attractive and such a good singer. Yeah, oh, great and, singer. Well, and a great, uh, a great actor as well. Great singer. Again, Lyric needs to stop doing these revivals where the production doesn't do justice to the music, to the score, and to the talent. Mm-hmm. Because, listen, you're Majeski your coot, your Koch up there. Like, wait, what are you feeling, though? I mean, in your heart of hearts, don't you know it's lame? Or maybe you don't care. What's your take? I'm not a performer. You are, Matthew. I don't know. As, as a performer on that level, most of these people have no input in these things whatsoever. And we all know how difficult it is to get good jobs in the operatic world as a singer. Right. These people are just happy to be making that fat, fat agma dough. Yeah. And, like, what are they going to do? Complain about the stage setting? Oh, come on. Well, I'll tell you, as a director, it always comes down to the costume. Singers, man, they don't care what the design of the set looks like. They don't care what the lighting is look like. You know, there's two types of singers. There's bats and there's moths. 
and the moths are able to find their light and get in it, and the bats are, like, allergic to the light. <laughs> but what the singers always care about is the costumes. And if they don't look good and they don't look sexy and feel hot in there, they really don't like wearing the costumes. I have a theory, George. Do you, did you see, this was years and years ago, there was a Royal Opera House, um, a Covent Garden production of Don Giovanni, okay. with Simon Keenly side okay. and Joyce DiDonato and Mia Pershawn and a lot of great people. Um, what, what is her name? Joyce DiDonato was singing Donna Elvira, mm-hmm. and there's the scene at the window where Don Giovanni comes up and sings to her, and the costumers had built her a dress that made it look like she wrapped a satin bedsheet around herself. Okay. And it was so gloriously attractive yeah. and sensual that I think that launched her into the stardom she's enjoying today. I love that take. You're going out on a limb there, but that sounds really sexy. It really was. It's great. So that that's so funny, man, that that was your best and that was my That worst. is very, very funny. We're going to have to agree and to disagree on that. I want to throw out one stat because you, I love the stats. Operabase.com, who does our stats. So get this. In the world in 2016, there were 23,539 opera performances. Wow. So 20, uh, almost 24,000, basically. In the U.S., there was 1,731, though. So less than 10% of the world's opera is being done in the U.S. Why don't those numbers make more sense? Why don't they add up? Why can't this country of a population of 300 million people with a gross domestic product of what it is, with a huge tourist industry, why is it doing less than 10% of the world's opera productions? Well, we know why. Uh, I think I think the answer is twofold. Um, governmental support. We know that a lot of countries in Europe, specifically Germany, Italy, um, have governmental funding support in a larger way for opera. Plus, I also think on a, in a more philosophical tone. Mm-hmm. Opera was born in Europe. Mm-hmm. It was cultivated there and raised to its maturity. Yeah. And then it matured along with these countries over hundreds upon hundreds of years. If you think about that timeline in terms of um, where America is as a country culturally, right. Right. though we did continue bringing traditions over from Europe and we do a great job in some ways of cultivating and creating art, we're still sort of in our teenage years which makes Katy Perry a lot more attractive than, say, De Rosenkavalier. This is also, I think, a very puritanical country. Mm-hmm. This is a country that was founded by Puritans. This yeah. is founded by people who escaped England, left England to come here, and it was a country based on a very closed-minded set of religious beliefs and values. Is it so surprising that we are still... 200, 250 years later, trying to break those down in areas such as the performing arts, where like Europe has wrestled with the idea of the fringe. It's wrestled with the idea of the nude for so many more centuries than mm-hmm. we have here. And I just wonder how that might affect our perception of what opera is and what opera can be and why we come back to this stat of 7% of these performances happening in the U.S. So you know the way we fix that. How's that? We take three years, and for those three years, every opera produced, every person has to be naked. Wow. That's a a big ask, Mathen. Yeah, but once the time goes away, everybody will be so over it that then it'll be fine again, right? It'll be so passe. Yeah. And then we'll be like, can you believe that they were wearing clothes in that production? See, it's all a pendulum swing. We're going to step aside for one more second, come back on here for our final segment of the show, going inside the huddle, Mathen and I talking about some of our personal artistic decisions for the year, and don't forget those predictions at the very end of the show. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and all the way from down south, Mathen Black. All right, we're back on Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here with the beautiful Math and Black. Oh, be still my beating heart. So uh, you had a Christmas back in Oklahoma. You've figured out the plans mm-hmm. for New Year. It will involve some champagne. That's good. Yeah, you should. My big thing about New Year's Eve, on the stroke of 12, I always want to be outside in the open air. Why? It's so cold. 
Again, I grew up in Michigan, so yeah, I'm impervious to the cold. But here's the thing. When I was a kid growing up, in the Eastern time zone, we always watched the ball drop in Times Square mm-hmm. on TV. That is so boring to me and so uninteresting. Now we're in the Central time zone, A, I don't have to pay attention to it. But B, on the stroke of midnight, I just I want to be out there breathing in that cold air and just launching the new year. I mean, I'm, I love having other people out with me. Usually, you know, the wife will come outside with me mm-hmm. as well. Kids are asleep. Have a little smooch. A little like New Year's Day smooch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, on the break as well, Mathen reminded me of this fantastic book mm. called The Rest is Noise. Mm-hmm. It's by Alex Ross, who is the music critic for The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book I finished reading in 2016. Really? Enough. It took me forever to read that book. Well, Mathen, let me throw it over to you. It ties in with our d- earlier discussion of Strauss. What's the point? Um, so this book is one of my favorite books in terms of musical diegesis. Um, but Alex Ross makes a really great point about Strauss and specifically about Salome, where there's this beautiful B-flat descending scale in the, um, in the clarinet in the opening of the opera that Alex says basically broke tonality because it doesn't follow any s- traditional scalular patterns. And that kind of weaving broken harmony is what led led to a lot of the other things we have in modern music specifically Britain um, specifically Philip Glass and John Cage uh, and a little John Adams tonality wise in the same place. I think Ross's point is a good one and it makes absolute sense. He argues that Strauss as a composer Strauss's works possibly even that scale Mm -hmm. is really the beginning of 20th century music. I absolutely agree. You know, we used to have conversations in my uh, musicology classes in my master's about Strauss specifically and about the the differences between high and low art and how Strauss Strauss exists in a specific place because he's kind of a low art writer and dramatist making art for the common people and Mm -hmm. making almost like the popish opera but still with this beautiful brilliance to it in a very sort of similar way that Mozart did it's kind of beautiful to see him straddling those lines and then all these years later being appreciated for his technical aspects the rest is noise by Alex Ross hey look you still got a couple nights of Hanukkah left so get it on that Hanukkah list it'd be a great gift Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. All right. Inside the huddle. I've never gone inside the huddle by by myself or with just you. You've never gone inside yourself? Uh, I'm trying to cut back. Okay, I understand. But I wanted to talk about the best and worst personal artistic decisions that we've made this year. We're talking about bests and worsts for 2016, and let's, it's time to turn the, the mirror inward a little New bit. New Year's is a good time for personal reflection. It is. It, it kind of ties into New Year's resolutions. Yeah, a little bit. as well, which I just have a couple days left. I guess I should start thinking you about should. that. You should. Probably. Um, maybe I'll, I'll sneak that into the end of the show, oh, along with my, my predictions, my New Year's resolution. <laughs> uh, for me, I think the personal highlight of 2016 was that trip to Germany that I alluded to earlier on in the show. Yeah. Three weeks at the end of March, beginning of April, sponsored by the Deutsche Oper Berlin and also the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation that had gotten me to Germany for the first time in 2011. I saw so many shows. Many of them were fantastic. Mm -hmm. A couple of them made absolutely no sense. There was a production of Der Freischutz by Weber that I saw in Weimar that made absolutely no sense at all. It took place in like a living room populated by wealthy Russians with like fur coats and flat screen TVs. Literally made no sense at all. What did they do for the Wolf's Glen scene? My man, I had to train to catch. Oh, (laughs) so I can't tell you, Uh, but that trip, it it, it helped me further my career a little bit. It helped me reconnect with a lot of administrators, colleagues, singers that I had met with in 2011 and 2012. I mean, hey, still waiting for the phone to ring from across the pond to hire me. But um, I was able to pitch a couple projects. I was able to do some interviews at places like the Opera House in Karlsruhe, Heidelberg, Munich. Um, 
and I'm, I'm not name dropping here just to blow my own horn because these are opera houses that are doing great work. Really great work. Interestingly, some of those interviews were in English. Mm-hmm. I would always try and start speaking in German. Of course. And sometimes uh, people took pity on me and were like, no, it's no problem. We can just talk in English. But one guy, actually two guys, one guy, I don't think he actually spoke very good English. Mm-hmm. And so we did just talk in German. And let me tell you something. You talk about your own work in German for 40 minutes, you definitely earn a beer. Yeah, you do. After that. The other guy talked in German. His English was totally fine. He just wanted to put me through the ringer. Which is not a bad thing. Actually, that, that's a great experience for any, no, dude, he was any just artist being mean. to have. No, I'm sure you had fun and a great beer afterwards. Well, part of the trip was, of course, just plain fun as well, man. Just a lot of, a lot of good beer, good sausage, good schnitzel, a lot of potatoes, you know, every like seventh day on the trip, I was like, I think I'll just have a salad <laughs> today. <laughs> but man, those other six, six days, just try to just cram down as much meat and potatoes. Well, you know, I think I figured out your problem with interviewing in German. Okay. You only it? know like two ways to call yourself amazing in that language. And that gets real old real fast, right? <laughs> the, um, I'm trying to think of another. I have another best as well, but I want to let you go first. For oh, sure. Yeah, there were a, a couple of things this year that I was very, very proud of. Okay. The first of which was uh, a little bit of traveling, uh, like you said also. Um, I got the opportunity with uh, South Shore Symphony Orchestra out of Indiana to take a trip to China this at the beginning of the year That's this year. right. I forgot about this. Go ahead. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy, crazy opportunity. I ended up filling in for a singer last minute. So I had two weeks in which to update my passport, get a Chinese visa, get my flight booked, and then travel 16 hours to Shanghai. I and a couple of other soloists and this awesome orchestra got to travel around and we did eight concerts in seven cities in six days. And it was just amazing, not just the music making, but having the opportunity to see another culture in such a vast way and to see their appreciation of our Western traditions of music really opened my eyes to the the largeness of the world. I've been to China, so I want to ask you a couple questions Mm -hmm. about your trip. First of all, what to you was one of the biggest moments of culture shock once you hit China? Everything is so different. I I was very lucky that I had very little time to research and plan, so it wasn't like I could be nervous about it. I just like figured everything out, handled my business, packed and went. And so I sort of had in my brain that, you know, all people are the same. Everything's going to be relatively same and we're going to get over there and it's all going to be fine. No, 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 no. The cultural differences are so deep from the way that you, you talk to other people to the way that you interact to the way that you eat, the things that you eat. It's just so vastly different. And you know, my, my German is decent, my Italian is okay, my French is passable. So when I've traveled through Europe, the language barrier was not quite such a thing. Mandarin is a crazy language. How's your Mandarin? Uh, I can say thank you, and that's about it. <laughs> so you had, you had a translator, I suppose. 100%. Okay, yeah. I saw a picture of you on the flight there, uh-huh. looking vaguely like Darth Vader. <laughs> With my humidifier. What was that? That's a humidifier, man. The lamest accessory ever created for singers. You know, do planes mess you up when you when you travel? Uh, yes and no. I'm kind of a small guy, so mm-hmm. like I'm able to sleep pretty yes. easily on a plane. Plus, I love the red-eye flight when yeah. I'm back on the West Coast flying east. That's kind of my dream. But so I, I can't sleep. I'm a giant human being. Um, I guess I'm technically an average size human being, but I'm six foot. I'm a big guy. I've got broad shoulders. On the on the trip over there, I had been booked a middle seat between a Chinese couple. Okay. And they kept like passing food across me the entire time. It was the worst. But no, I uh, the dry air messes with my voice, and especially because we were going, we were singing so many concerts. I bought this thing called a humidifier, which is basically like a, a cone, like a like a, a sterilization mask for your face. But it catches your moisture, recycles it, and keeps you from drying out on the plane. It's absolutely ridiculous and works one hundred percent. And Jamie Barton has one, so I don't have to defend myself to you, George. This is like the most lame and beautiful thing I've heard of at the same time. It's true. I I don't know where that photo is now. It's it's in the archives. It's somewhere Facebook on the internet. I'm something. sure it's there. Yeah, it's brilliant. That was a true highlight for you. It really was. was. To, and you were just in Shanghai. 
And we traveled all around um, okay. to the point that we drove so much I lost track of where we went. So I know we were in Hangzhou, we were in Shanghai. Um, there was a trip afterwards to Beijing that I didn't go to. But okay. then what? Five other cities that I can't remember because I can't read the signs. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do a worst now. Please. Here's one of the the worst decisions, I suppose, of 2016, but it's not a decision that I made. This is a decision of all the administrators that I write to as a director who don't write back. It's something I have never been able to understand in all the years that I've been pounding the pavement as a director is I refuse to believe that any one person or their staff, their handlers, their wranglers is so busy that they can't write back even a form letter to say like, we received your email. We'll contact if you there is an interest. Or we received your email. We are not in a position to even start a conversation. The problem when you write, hey, this is who I am. This is what I've been doing. Here's an embedded link to my website. I'll make it real easy for you. The problem when you don't hear back is you don't know, did the email go through or not? Did you offend in some way? Did you write to the wrong person? Did it end up in spam? Is it something that they want to get to, but then you've got to follow up on, but then if you follow up on it, then you realize you're just pissing them off because there's no point in the conversation. So, and you know, this is the cross I feel like directors have to bear is we have no way of auditioning. You singers... You fill out a form on Yap Tracker, or if you have an agent, your agent gets you into the audition, and you guys are literally singing for your supper. Similar to conductors, I think, in a way, we directors, all we have is our ideas and how we articulate mm-hmm. them. And the bottom line is that if artistic administrators, they have to see our work, and they have to see our work in person. Mm-hmm. And to me, it seems like the only way to make that happen is to write these emails and to invite people. The only other way I can imagine doing it is basically having work which is so outrageous that it goes viral and that you are therefore getting the people to you rather than you hunting the people down. I think you're right. You know, I... I continue to um, bolster myself for auditioning, for cold calling, for all of these things, remembering the great old Steve Martin adage when he said that to make it in this business, you basically have to be so good that they can't ignore you. And I think so much of what we do is in that vein and trying to constantly make the craft better. But how do you get someone to pay attention? That's also one of my worst calls for this year. I I never regret the things that I do. I never regret the artistic choices that I make. Mm-hmm. But this system of trying to figure out how to break into a musical world is so very difficult for everyone. Yeah. And I'm, so my worst call is going to opera companies whom either you do audition for or you are not granted an audition who send form letters that are not personalized okay. to you okay. that have no feedback, no nothing, yeah. just say no thank you. Or like one company in particular telling us that uh, you don't have enough experience on major levels, you don't have enough education when they send those letters to people who that is not true for right that becomes problematic when you get the rejection letters Uh do you ever write back and ask for feedback i i do not okay um i have known some singers who can but there's there's an epidemic in the world of auditioning right now and i wonder if you find the same thing true in the directing world with the internet and with Yap Tracker being an aggregate for all of these kinds of things, mm-hmm. an opera company who used to get a hundred applications a year now gets upwards to fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred? Fifteen hundred. And Whoa. and that may even be a small estimate of okay. people across the world who audition for these things. Yeah. And I would say twenty percent of those people have no business auditioning for the programs. So the opera companies have no um they have no recourse but to automate these processes, but I think it is doing a giant disservice to finding the next level of talent and not just that, but creating regional scenes that support themselves artistically. Let's finish with one more best here and I want to keep this short and sweet so that I'm not accused of tooting my own horn too much I hope you're going to agree with this in the penal colony the Philip Glass Mm -hmm. opera that I directed and that you sang the lead role in Mm -hmm. at Chicago Fringe Opera in May that was a real highlight of my 2016 George that may be the most 
artistically fulfilling project I have ever been a part of. Because there you were, Mathen. Uh, you had been sick. You had had to pass on some other projects at the beginning of that year, the end of 2015. And this for you, man, you had to dig deep and make some tough decisions. That piece is very tough musically. It's very tough emotionally. Yeah. And you delivered. Oh, it was fun. Um, you and I have developed a relationship working together, not just through podcasting and broadcasting journalism, but also through um, through productions for a couple of years now. And being able to work with your friends, being able to create something that you have ownership in, like our productions with Chicago Fringe Opera, all of that is very rewarding, let alone the artistic choices you're able to make. Modern music, which I love, people that I love, being able to push myself to my limits... I love all of these things. And then to have it be received so well by the public and by the critics made the whole thing magical. It's very rare, I think, when everything lines up. Mm -hmm. But that really was a show where, like, it just all happened and everyone did their job. You know, Kathy O'Shaughnessy, who is conducting you, Zach Vanderberg, who is singing opposite you, our two actors in the show, our designers, the venue, Little Street Art Center that we were performing the piece in, everything just came right into focus. And that is so rare. It was a wonderful way to start the year. Uh, we're going to wrap this show up with our predictions in the Good Call, Bad Call segment. Good Call, Bad Call. On Opera Box Score. So, I'll go first with my prediction for 2017, and it's kind of a dark one. I think that there's going to be an opera house in some sort of a mid-market city here in the U.S., which is going to go under this year. It's not going to be a big company. It's not going to be a San Francisco or a Houston, probably even not a Dallas. It's going to be someone, something small in California, New Orleans Opera, San Antonio Opera, maybe Cleveland or Wilmington, Delaware, something like that, which is finally not going to be able to make ends meet. They're going to realize that the audiences aren't coming, that the programming isn't working. They're not going to have a solution, and something like that is just going to go poof in a cloud of smoke. Oh, man. You know, we've already seen things like this happen on a slightly larger scale with San Diego a few years ago. But San Diego had such a place in the community and was such a large um, a, a large operation that the community refused to let it die. I think you're right. I think the next step is for a slightly smaller opera company to come into the same sort of financial position but not have the support to keep it going. What's your prediction for 2017? You know, my prediction for 2017 is that these larger opera houses are going to start getting wind of what's happening in the independent opera scene. People like Bear Opera, Loft Opera, Chicago Fringe Opera, Rhymes with Opera, all of these small opera companies <laughs> that are making... Wait, Rhymes with Opera? There's a real production company called Rhymes with Opera. It's Just awesome. check. Ch check it out online. Um, but I think these large opera companies who have been fighting to try to find a way into that smaller market and who have had very little success with that... I think one of these companies, like The Lyric or like um, like San Francisco, are going to try to purchase one of these small companies and create sort of a franchise model. I think next next year, next year and a half, I think something like this is going to happen. Speaking of which, if anyone from The Lyric Opera would like to purchase Chicago Fringe Opera from us, we'll give you a great deal. You were really going out in a limb, man. That is one of the crazier ideas that I've heard, and you're just squeezing it under the radar with days to go. Does it, does it sound so crazy, though? Everyone is trying to find ways to interact with a younger audience, and though there are small companies who are doing exactly that but lack the resources of the larger company, can you imagine if a large institution creates a feeder institution that isn't educationally based but gets the young millennials? They're basically grooming the next 60 years Years of their own patrons. There just doesn't seem to be a precedent for it. I'm not saying new things can't happen yeah. at this stage. Uh, it makes artistic sense to me. Does it make financial sense? I'm not sure about that. I've never paid a lot of attention to the numbers. I will be thrilled to see something like that happen. Uh, before we wrap it up, any New Year's resolutions, math, and I, you know, I do have a New Year's resolution. Okay. Um, as much as we talk about the audition scene and as much as we talk about how difficult it is to put yourself out there, the only things I ever regret in my artistic life are when I come up with an opportunity and choose to say no to it out of fear. This next year, I want to go out for everything and any opportunity and have, have a strong iron will like Dmitry Horstovsky and try to really kick it. Beautiful. So your New Year's resolution 
resolution, two words is no fear. No fear. I think that's great. You have any tattoos? I don't have any tattoos. Okay. That could be your theoretical tattoo. That could be the new one. My theoretical tattoo, my New Year's resolution, is also two words, and it's pure class. That's how I really want to live my life in 2017, is to do the purely classy thing, whether that is as a husband, as a dad, as a director, or as some guy on the street holding the door open or, like, picking up some litter. Pure class. George, I think you're already there. That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score. Hey, like our Facebook page, share, and comment on our posts. Tweet us using at Opera Box Score and our hashtag, Opera Balls. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher if you haven't already. Hey, look, give us 30 seconds of your time. Leave us a review on iTunes. It's the cheapest. It's the fastest way to promote our show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Store is Oliver Camacho. For my guest co-host, Mathen Black, who also edited this podcast, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you ring in the new year. We're back live next Monday night at 9 Central for our first show of 2017, plus Tobias Wright returns to the lineup. Catch you then. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash popup on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then, give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later.